Hello, and welcome to Into the Aether. It's a low-key video game podcast. My name, dear listener, is Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. I've got some big news. Hit me with your big news. Some might consider this the red wedding of Into the Aether. (laughs) (laughs) I almost spit coffee everywhere. (laughs) Oh my My, god. My dear close friend Eric uh, is hosting me today. I'm actually recording uh, in his apartment. Hello, Eric. And... He has a really comfortable chair uh, uh-huh. in his room that I'm sitting in now. Yeah. And it just so happens that this chair is also a gamer chair. Wow. Um, and this is the first time in my life that I am sitting in a gamer chair. Now, let me be clear. Yeah. It's a tasteful gamer chair. Because I feel okay. like a lot of gamer chairs look like something Guy Fieri would turn into if he was a Transformer. You know, <laughs> like there's kind of a loudness to the design mm-hmm. that is impossible to ignore. This one's like. A sleek, uniform, like, black-gray color. Yeah. Tell me more about it. I can't see... So, at the angle that you're recording, I can't see it. And I don't want to, because it's, again, an audio medium (laughs) podcasting. So, I feel like you should explain it to both me and the listener. I want to hear more about it. Tell me more about it. How's the lumbar support? What are the materials? What's the the back feel like? I just... The the first feeling you get Mm -hmm. when you sit in a gamer chair is, I will never leave. That's mm. like the first thing my brain told me is like this chair is so comfortable. Right. And is is comforting areas of my neck I didn't know were there. Yeah. I thought I just had like a head that floated on pain. Uh-huh. <laughs> it it's it's I I don't know if I can go back to my like weird you know, stops at the lower back office chair that I've been recording in for years. Right. So now it's like once you sit in a gamer chair, you need one and it's impossible to find one that looks as like classy as this one. Cause they're mm. all like, they're all, you know, the most saturated version of, of a Mountain Dew can you've ever seen. Right. You know, I did. I had a gamer chair briefly when I was, uh, yeah. when I, when I first moved out of my house when I was 18 and I like had my own place, uh, yeah. I immediately bought a gamer chair because of course I did uh, and had it for, I think, like two years. And I will say it it does have that like blessing and curse aura about it where like, <laughs> yes, it does mean that you will be sitting in it and playing games for longer than anticipated because it is and can be so comfortable. And it does make me wonder how I have sat in so many horrible office chairs over the years as well when gamer chairs have always been there and have always been so comfortable. Like, how did it take so long? for herman miller to finally be like oh yeah we should look to that and try and make something like that the other thing too is that and and eric brought up a good point that like to get a gamer chair it is less money than like getting an ergonomic office chair and it's essentially the same thing or is it no i mean it's it's very comfortable and i i feel like once i get a new apartment i might need to get one and wow. that's kind of the the looming threat in the distance. It's like, yeah, the question is not whether or not I get one. It's what kind of chair do I get? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, with the amount of like working remotely and recording the show and doing digital art, like I do need to invest in a better chair because mm. the chair I have right now, like you think it's fine. And then you stand up and your ass just hurts again. Everywhere. <laughs> like it, just, it is like I need to yeah. like, you know, walk it off every time you talk about Mario. <laughs> So, yeah, I just I don't know. I don't know really how to put it into words, but I couldn't just start this episode pretending like it was another day in my life. Like yeah, this is a totally. 
this is a turning point and what road I will go down only gamers know. (laughs) (laughs) I I will say uh, for the longest time I was recording and working in a chair that honestly, like people just made fun of me for relentlessly when they would come to my house. Yeah, Yeah, they would come to my apartment. It was a free chair from my parents' neighbors that they were throwing out that they said I could have. Uh, that That was broken in every way possible. It only leaned as far back as you being able to like look directly up at the ceiling without straining your neck and and did not go up or down and was way too low for every desk that I've ever seen or owned and I did sit in that and use it for like maybe six or seven years until I finally got the uh, Ikea branded I think it's called Yarfolet which I did build on stream on our Twitch channel (laughs) I remember that yeah which is very silly Uh, but point being getting an actually good chair like for real was a life-changing revelation for me it was like oh my god why have I been sitting in that horrible chair for so long it is worth the investment dear listener yeah I would say like I'm the kind of person that for a lot of utility in my life I don't get a new version unless it's actively broken but my advice and independent of the gamer chairs curse (laughs) if if there's any part of your routine that could be enhanced by like investing in nicer furniture or like a thing for yourself like do it why not it's going to be money well spent if you can make your routine more comfortable and better for you in some way yeah i got a standing desk also oh did you yeah, the standing desk was a big one for me Yeah, because I have found that there are certain instances, specifically work meetings, but also podcast episodes where it is better to be standing than sitting down. Yeah, it changes the energy. It changes the vibe entirely for this show. Usually when we're recording in the mornings, sitting down in my Ikea Yarfolet. I, th- yeah. I think it's a wonderful vibe. It's a low key video game podcast, a low key vibe. I'm sitting. I'm enjoying myself. Yeah. But sometimes we'll have a recording about something completely unhinged or terrifying, <laughs> in which case I do need to be standing up. Uh, like when our friends at Eye of the Duck invited me on to talk about the young Indiana Jones Chronicles television program. <laughs> yeah, you That's not stand. something that I'm going to sit down for. I need to stand up. I need to have a stiff drink in one hand uh, and, I, and I need to be balancing on a balance board at all times. I am wondering if there's ever going to be a game of the year episode where we stand up in AJ's living room for six hours. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, yeah, just yeah, for the whole time. <laughs> pacing around we'll just have like a really long xlr cable and just like pacing with microphones like no 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 i don't i don't i can't do this i can't do this exactly i don't know why i just imagine us hanging like bats upside down like that's better audio for some reason (laughs) audio audio waves travel downwards everyone knows it's like it's like cold air yeah exactly (laughs) it's actually silent at the top of any room something to look forward to at the end of 2022 (laughs) so anyway That's the current scenario. I would love to pivot uh, while we're both comfortably seated, pivot to talking about two games that are really (laughs) wonderfully connected. This is another scenario where we didn't really plan on there being a thematic connection in what we brought to the table, but there definitely is. We're talking about two games, I think, in this section. One is Res, which I briefly brought up last week, and the other is Tetris Effect Connect. Connected. Connected. Excuse me. I did like the rhyme of Effect Connect, but Connect is fine. I'll settle. (laughs) 
so neither of us played Tetris Effect. That I think came out for VR first, right? In 2018. Yeah, yeah, that was a PSVR and Oculus and Vive game. Uh, mm-hmm. I I, th- I think it was PSVR originally when it launched in 2018, and I think it was Oculus and Vive the next year. And then they eventually released a, a second version of it called Tetris Effect Connected that added like a bunch of stuff. I think it's specifically like co-op and and competitive yeah. multiplayer elements and a bunch of other things. And we can talk more about that later. But that anyway came out on consoles unhooked from VR. You don't need a VR headset anymore. You can just play it. Uh, and it's on pretty much everything. It's on Xbox, PC. It's on Switch at this point, And it's on PlayStation, which you you got it through the new PlayStation Plus subscription thing, right? Yeah. I, so I, <clears throat> I did sign up for the new subscription. That's kind of Sony's version of Game Pass, where if you select a certain tier of their subscription, you can get access to like a pretty huge library of games. And like, I think we've we've been lightly critical of it because I think that we know I think Game Pass just seems like the gold standard for this type of service. That being said, if you're not like hosting a video game podcast and playing an <laughs> absurd amount of games like we yeah. are, this is a great it's a great deal. And it's also like a great way to catch up because like I basically tell everyone like mm-hmm. people who are waiting on a PS5 it will sometimes casually be revealed that I have a PS5 and people are like, what the fuck? How'd you one? How'd you get one? Yeah. And two, like, <laughs> is it worth it? Yeah. Well, I do think it's a great piece of hardware and they're like playing a game like Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart. You can see what the future can look like and it's really exciting. But honestly, like I can confidently say like, wait at least two years, like wait two years for there to inevitably be an upgraded model and you're going to get all the first party games for way less money and you're going to have access to like this entire backlog and like there's a lot of great games in there a lot it's not exciting immediately to you and i because a lot of the games we've like played and adored already so it's not like oh cool like bloodborne's there we already have that like but you know to someone who has missed that library it's incredible and honestly like i think it's worth it from the you know it's all subjective with what you can afford but i think like the amount of money it costs to just get the standard like i can play games online subscription and the one that like is the first tier of this like access to the game catalog i do think it's worth it i think it's like not that much more and you get so much more for your money but that's just my opinion so i ended up getting it and i downloaded a few games just to talk about it that way we're not totally uh accidentally sponsored by game pass yeah so i downloaded i uh, I do want to mention just before we move on from that because i also got like whatever the top tier of that is and i've been downloading and playing some stuff here and there as well the big thing for me i think is like personally just knowing that it doesn't have this game pass model of like new big first party playstation game comes out and immediately is on this playstation plus thing and i think that's the big differentiator between game pass and this that is worth knowing going in totally i totally agree with you like even though I, I think for people like you and I, it's maybe a little bit underwhelming, even though the catalog is great, as we're about to talk about. There is this element of like any time somebody asks me, like, what console should I get going forward? This is going to be part of the thought process, you know, is going to be like, did you have a PS4? If you didn't have a PS4, get a PS5 and get this. And you're going to have like literally like 500 video games to play <laughs> with the subscription right. service. And you're going to be fine, like forever. And by the time you make it through all of them, they will have added the new big first party stuff like 
God of War Ragnarok not launching on this PlayStation Plus thing, probably. But that said, in like two years, it might be there. And in two years, you will still be working your way through the stuff that launched with this new service. You'll still be playing Persona 5 Royal. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Taking a broader look, you can be critical of like subscription services as a whole, which like I'm not trying to condone like the whole business model. But again, I just do want to take a step back and be like, you know, we've been pretty directly critical of it. And, I, and like you said, and like I said moments ago, like it is pretty cool for someone who doesn't have access or didn't play those games yeah. originally. And there's a bunch of stuff that I missed personally over the years yeah. that I now have access to, which is great. Like I, I just have Red Dead Redemption 2 waiting in the wings for, I don't know, someday. I don't know when I'm going to play that, <laughs> but like it's cool that that's just there and I can just play it whenever. I'm really curious what you'll think about that. I I, I enjoyed it, but I'm, I, uh, I think that'll be a cool conversation. I can't wait to smash the howdy button. <laughs> Evening, mister. Yeah, I think... Uh, <laughs> It'll be fun to talk about that game again in light of our many recent conversations about open world games. So that that game is like very much committed or was committed to being like the biggest and grandest thing. And it succeeds as often as it fails, in my opinion. Yeah, um, it's definitely worth playing. Like a lot of people love that game. I, I really liked it. I eventually kind of moved on. I think I described it as playing D&D where the DM took every rule from the handbook and put it in the game. <laughs> so like once I had to clean my gun, I was like, come on, this one I have fun um but uh you know it's it is it is it is cool to see a game try to do that and like see what works what doesn't yeah i could see myself loving it we'll 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 find out there's a lot to admire anyway uh back to this service two games that i saw on on this collection that i wanted to play uh, have wanted to play for a long time but i haven't gotten around to were xcom and tetris effect Tetris Effect was a big deal, like right when we started the show, and neither of us really got to it. And I think similar to our conversation with Mario, whenever there's a new Tetris, it's like, cool, like, why would I care at this point? Tetris is like, you know, the most standard thing. We had the hubris just last month to say that Tetris DS was maybe the best version of Tetris you could play. And I do think it's a really good version of Tetris. Tetris Effect is a incredible experience that I could recommend with with the huge caveat of like major epilepsy warnings, which the game is very clear about if you're sensitive to like colors and sound in that way. I do think I could recommend it to pretty much anyone who has an interest because I think it's like I think we talk a lot about games that are using the medium of games to tell a story uniquely a game like mass effect or you know skyrim in the case of skyrim the story is sort of there but like the moment to moment like i'm wandering this place and in mass effect the moments where it's like your decisions affect the story that's something that only games can do but i've never really thought about like what are experiences that are maybe non-narrative that are unique to games and tetris effect is very much interested in that question It's a version of Tetris that aligns your actions with the color and sound of the experience. And it's really hard to put into words because essentially it's just like, yeah, it's really pretty and it sounds cool. But (laughs) it really does lead to a hypnotic experience that's really hard to put down. I think it's a it's a incredible game and it shares a lot of talent with a game called Res that we're going to talk about a little later And there's a lot of connective tissue here in terms of like how the game is structured and how it just like feels to experience it. It sounds a little snobby, but I do think it's like more of an experience than anything else, uh, which is which is cool to say out loud. Every once in a while, Stephen, (laughs) we will play a game on this show that I will kick myself in the past. I will go back in time and find my own ass and kick it with my own foot. (laughs) 
Yeah. Because I'm so upset. And this is extremely one of those situations. I, I think I've talked about this on the show before and probably in the realm of talking about Tetris DS. But like, I love Tetris and I yeah. have for like most of my life. I've re- like I am. I love Tetris so much. I think it's like one of the most perfectly designed things just ever. I, it, it's an incredible just experience to get into. The Tetris effect specifically is named after like the actual effect studied phenomenon of people who play Tetris a lot who will start to see places where Tetris blocks can fit in real life. Um, So like, I don't know if you're walking through a supermarket or something and you see a bunch of like stacked up cases of soda or something and you're like, oh, yeah, you could put an L block right there. You know, like that's what the Tetris effect is, essentially. Uh, Consider it like tunnel vision when you're playing Guitar Hero or something. Kind of a similar vibe. So this is named after that, uh, essentially. But this whole game was kind of built from the ground up to elicit that as strongly as humanly possible. The short version of this history is essentially that EA owned the rights to Tetris for a really, really long time. Um, And eventually those rights lapsed and a new company that's, I think, called just the Tetris company ended up buying the rights back. And they were like, finally, we have Tetris again in our house. We can do whatever we want with it. And this was when this team came together and said, like, we want to do something really cool with this. Like, we have a really cool idea. And and, and anytime anyone is like, we have a cool idea for Tetris, you should say yes, I feel like. Because anyone who thinks that they can improve on this, it's like saying you want to be president. Like, no one in their right (laughs) mind should ever think that they should be the president of the United States of America. That's like an unhinged thing to think and then follow through on. Same exact thing with saying I can make Tetris better. And usually my feeling about this stuff is like, I just want Tetris on another device. Like I just want to have access to this again. You and I talked years ago. This is like right when EA like fucked it all and lost the rights. But EA removed every version of Tetris from the app store and then replaced it with like a live service version of Tetris that was like so broken and bad and didn't have any it didn't have any modes in it outside of the original Tetris. They're like, we're going to add some in the future. And it was like microtransaction ridden somehow. Also, it was a nightmare. Immediately following that was the Tetris company spinning up and you have things like Tetris 99 on the switch and you have things like the Tetris effect launching, which like the Tetris effect was critically and commercially a huge success. Like it was a huge video game and I should have played it and I didn't. And if I had, I think I would have been like, this is maybe the game of the year that yeah. year. like I, yeah. I really think, you know, 2018, our game of the year was Marvel Spider-Man uh, between the two of us and my other game of the year, like my personal one was Hollow Knight. T- Tetris effect would have been in like that top two, top three tier for me yeah. had I played it when it came out. This is like one of the rare situations where I will like redact an older game of the year. Not that I'm actually changing it, <laughs> Like, I will say, like, if I had played this game, then it, it would have been that I have I have since played and beaten the Tetris effect since like a couple days ago uh, when wow, I started nice. playing it. And I've been playing online a bunch as well. Um, I'm going to get it again on Switch now as well. Cool. It's worth mentioning, as you said, you played this on the PlayStation Plus thing. I played it on Game Pass because it's also on Game Pass um, and it's also available on Switch. And I feel like I have to have it on Switch. The thing about the Tetris effect is that, I mean, it's brilliant, especially just knowing the team that this came from. And, and we'll talk more about that later. But this team is known for over the years creating games that are all about this this intrinsic link between like getting in the zone of a puzzle game and also sights and sounds to match that and get you more in the zone faster and it's like such a natural progression for them to eventually take on Tetris and try and do the thing that they've been doing for years in other avenues for Tetris and it is such a slam dunk success of a video game the the way this game works is you're just playing Tetris as normal but surrounding 
surrounding this game of Tetris are all of these incredible visuals and sounds that are reacting to everything you're doing. So if you're spinning the block left, if you're spinning the block right, if you're putting the block in a bank, if you're doing like a soft drop, if you're doing like a hard drop, it reacts to all of those things and incorporates it into the music that's playing. And the music is wildly good. I mean, it's like it's great. Yeah, it's. You know, it's not just like banger after banger after banger. It's not like you're playing Sayonara Wild Hearts, which like it very easily could have been. And I still would have been effusive about it like I am about Sayonara Wild Hearts. But there are moments where it just tries to be this like like beautiful, serene ambiance because it knows that you're like the way it works is you'll start a level and then you'll play through like five levels in a row. You have to make it through all five levels. And, you know, halfway in there when you're already deeply in the zone and they transition you to a new area, that area sometimes will just be like the woods and it's raining and you can hear like a little bit of wind. And that's like that's the ambiance that you get. And it knows that you're so in the zone that it becomes this extremely serene Zen like experience, even removed from like, you know, an like an actual like up tempo 120 BPM four on the floor dance breakbeat. Like sometimes it has the restraint to also just be like as relaxing as possible and to oscillate between all those different vibes so seamlessly. It's like such a tightly considered game. It's 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 brilliant. Yeah. It's a brilliant game. It's like for me, I think it's the best version of Tetris like by far. Yeah, I would say so. And I, I, I I'm blown away by it, too. Like I, I like Tetris, but I, I think like. I expected my interest in this game to be like, oh, that's a cool experiment and move on and not like be playing it until like two in the morning nonstop. Yeah. I, I also love the decision of like when you do clear four rows and get, you know, a Tetris, <laughs> the music will often change. So sometimes there'll be like a really big transition between like, I think one of the first levels is just like very like, you know, lo-fi kind of dream like sounds and and fittingly there's a whale kind of just you know made yeah. of particles in the distance and then when you clear four rows suddenly the vocals come in and like i love that i mean that's such a powerful tool that games have where like you did something that just fundamentally changed the game yeah you know and it could be as simple as music and we see that a lot in breath of the wilds you know which is a constant comparison point to every well-made game but <laughs> <laughs> you know i think in terms of the sound design like Breath of the Wild is very minimal. You know, they'll they'll just be wind for the longest time. And then like, you know, when you encounter an enemy, suddenly the music is different. Um, or maybe once you finish climbing a place, they'll just be like a few notes of the piano. Zelda's always been really good about using sound as kind of like a signifier of like accomplishments. Mm-hmm. But I think Breath of the Wild is so minimal in its structure that when you do get music, when you do get like a sweeping orchestra or something, it's really it stands out. I mean, very similar to Shadow of the Colossus, where like when you figure out how to fight a colossus the music goes from being this like dissonant terror and wonder of this beast to triumph and like it's so effective and and again it's very simple but i think like basically building an entire game using tetris to make that effect Mm -hmm. oh god here we go um (laughs) connected yeah (laughs) dude the internet um (laughs) it's it's so well done and and i think it's much harder to pull this off than it sounds. I think when a game yes. is so, because I do think as grand as the as the visuals and the music is here, this is a very minimal game. You know, it's really using Tetris, which is maybe like the simplest form of game that can exist outside of like Pong, to 
create an experience that is like emotional and gripping in a way without narrative. I mean, it's it's the for lack of a better phrase, it's the power of music to be doing something so simple and find yourself being moved emotionally. Yeah. Despite the soundtrack itself. I was going to say, truthfully, I, I have no shame admitting this, but there was a moment while playing this game that I started tearing up because it was so yeah. beautiful, which I like hit me like a ton of bricks. I did not expect that to happen at all. I, I think it's one of those situations where I think even though all of the elements are so minimal, as you're saying, it does all build up. And I think connected, obviously, being in the name is like really kind of uh, throwing a dart directly at the bullseye. But it does feel like a game that is like celebrating life and humanity and yeah, just like our yeah. shared experience in a way. And it it's so hard to explain how the game is is conveying that but it does so so beautifully and so succinctly that you do feel it on like a really emotive level while playing fucking tetris like it's yeah <laughs> it's shocking it's shocking how effective the game is um i mean there are things here and there that i think are, are really wonderful like a, lo- a lot of the levels are kind of exploring different regions of the world uh one of the levels takes place in like a space station in like the iss which is really cool um and anytime you're like moving the blocks around you hear like chatter over the microphones of people like speaking while they're out in space which is like amazing there's one level that changes its music depending on what time of day it is which is really cool oh that's awesome the last level in particular um is is shocking it's very difficult this is my maybe my one gripe with this game is i think the game gets really hard sometimes it is yeah i i'm like at the sixth or seventh level in like the second world basically yeah. Like you know, there's like five levels and then you advance to like the next like leg of the journey. Mm-hmm. And I am at the level where it's just windmills in the sky. It's very yes, surreal. I know that one. You're like dropping cogs, right? That's another great decision. Like the actual Tetris bricks correspond with the energy of the level. Mm-hmm. So that level is like kind of all mechanical and surreal. And there's another level like around that point in the game where it's like kind of like silhouettes of people like meditating and it's all fire. And like the better you do, the more people are there and the more they're kind of like getting into it and like cheering you on. I mean, not even cheering, but like just like, you know, chanting and like that level gets really difficult at the end. Yeah. Yeah. I think actually I think now that I'm remembering that is the level I'm currently on because I I, there was a point where like the whole the screen like pulled out and there was like dozens of people like getting really into it. I'm like, I'm so sorry to disappoint all of you, but I just lost. (laughs) Yeah, this this is this is my one major complaint with this game. So it's worth mentioning that there is, you know, as as minimal as it is and as much of like a straight up Tetris experience as it is, they do add one specific mechanic to this game that they call the zone, which is. I think is perfect again for this team, but it's called the zone. It's this meter that you fill up as you're, as you continue to clear lines over and over again, uh, you start to build up this meter. And when it hits max, whatever, like once it fills up entirely, you can at any point press the shoulder buttons on your controller. And that will essentially freeze time and allow you to take all the time you need uh, to drop blocks. And the idea is that you're using this time to clear as many lines as possible. So the hope is that you would essentially just like clear a shitload of lines while this thing is frozen you get like bonus points if you're clearing lines while you're using the zone meter that having been said for me it ended up just being like i need to pump the brakes button every once in a while in moments like that because they will just hit you completely at random sometimes it's like okay this level you need to clear 70 lines and as soon as you hit 60 it's like we're gonna ramp up the speed like eight times what it is right now yeah and that's and as soon as that happens every time my first instinct is just like slamming the shoulder buttons 
just to freeze time and be like, oh my God, I need to think about this for a second. Because, you yeah. know, you, classic Tetris strategy, like I spend a lot of time building up so I can use the straight line blocks or whatever to just like clear four lines at a time. Um, and sometimes that fucks you. Like, honestly, sometimes that is the wrong strategy to be using on some of these levels because once they speed time up that quickly, it's like you don't even have time to think or react or like think about what you have in the bank or what's or even look at what's coming up next. You just need to be reacting in the moment, which is what the game wants you to be doing, to be clear. But if you're trying to play it like a score chase game early on, you're going to get ruined. You need to get into the rhythm, actually, like the literal actual rhythm of just playing the game to clear lines. And it's the first time I've thought about playing Tetris differently in like a decade. Like I haven't thought about this experience of like outside of Tetris 99, which is like a completely different thing, I think. But it's the first time that I've played like a pretty like straight and narrow Tetris game where I'm not just trying to set up to get Tetris over and over and over again, but I am instead trying to get into this rhythm where I'm not thinking and I'm not thinking about what's in the bank and I'm not looking at what's coming up next. I'm just in the moment of like the here and now. Like I it's all about being present. Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's an amazing video game. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I I really am blown away by it. And obviously, you know, it's it's fun to look back, you know, when we do our game of the year episodes and like there's always going to be some huge triumph that we miss. We're like, fuck. Like, yeah. <laughs> but that's also the beauty of doing the show is like I think we both recognize that whenever we do our game of the year list, like we're not going to capture everything. No one yeah, person is going to be able to do that. And I think it's great to be like, oh, man, like not to constantly retcon our list, but to be like, what did I miss from that time? You know, that was like this game came out right when the show began. Again. And like, yeah. I think it's kind of beautiful to look back on that time and find something that's like so tailor made to us and especially to you. Yeah, it's really cool. I had PlayStation VR. <laughs> I was I'm I'm one of those people that had it like I could have it should have been for me. I don't know. I don't yeah. know what's not me. I am hoping that they port it to PSVR 2 when that comes out, because I will definitely play that. I feel like I've been commonly sort of disinterested in VR and my disinterest is not out of any like dislike of VR as a concept, but more that like, for me, the experience needs to be built with VR in mind. And this is the best of both worlds where like Tetris Effect, I can imagine being like truly a life changing experience in VR, yeah. but also works totally fine without it. And, you know, I think like my slight guard with VR is like, I think sometimes it's talked about as if that's going to be like the new way to experience all games. And I don't think that's the case really, but I do think that there's a lot of really exciting things to do with games in that space. I just hope it becomes kind of easier to acquire because I feel like at this point it's still inherently a novelty because it's so expensive to get, right? It requires either a gaming PC and I guess the Oculus or whatever the the Facebook one is. I was going to say it requires either a gaming PC or you have to give money to Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) which like (laughs) i don't know no ethical consumption under capitalism obviously but yeah right yikes they also just raised the price of their thing the meta quest 2 they raised the price by like a hundred dollars oh cool that's gonna work like years after it came out too which is weird (laughs) that's the opposite of how that usually goes (laughs) for like any piece of technology ever should i get a ps5 no wait two years that way it's gonna be six hundred dollars and ratchet and clank will be gone and they overdrafted (laughs) your account when you buy it (laughs) I will, I will say on the PSVR end, there's another game that I did play on there that I think you'd really like that was called Super Hypercube, partially mm. by the team that made Fez. So it's like by Polytron. You yeah, can, you can tell when looking at it that that's like that's Phil Fish's whole design ethos just in a video game. But it's essentially uh, this game where there, there's like a big wall coming towards you that has a hole in it. And you have a piece in front of you that is like this kind of like cubic tetris looking block um that you need to rotate in 3d space to try and fit it through that hole and it is 
so cool to play in VR because this big this big block is right in front of you and you need to like walk around and like look around this thing to see what shape is in the wall. It's really cool. It feels a lot like this game visually and aesthetically and like what they're going for. It seems to also be similar uh, because it gets into this rhythm where kind of like Tetris, you can do like a hard drop where you can like just kind of zoom through the hole. And uh, it just makes me wish that I had played Tetris Effect all over again thinking about super hypercube also skyrim steven yeah <laughs> that's always the one in my head because i know you you love skyrim vr i was just talking with my friend who i'm i'm at his place currently like once again feeling the pull of skyrim steven it's all about sitting in your gamer chair with a vr headset on lighting a scented pine candle and opening all mm. the windows in winter and playing skyrim vr that sounds great. I've been getting actually more into candles lately, although the candles I've been getting are named after emotions more than they are uh, scents, which I should probably do more research because I don't know what like clear headed smells like. Yeah, know? I'd love to know. I'd love to know what your, what, your, <laughs> what your emotions smell like. I also really love like sea salt stuff, sea salt candles. Mm. Um, I usually go for like also like kind of piney candles. Anyway. Yeah. So with that, unless you have anything else to say about Tetris Effect, uh, I would love to maybe move on to Res because I think there's a lot of similarities here. Yes, I will say about Res before you tell me about it. The reason I decided to not play it, even though I was staring at it, staring down the barrel of Res on uh, <laughs> on the PlayStation Plus thing, because I, I really do want to play it on the Dreamcast because it did launch on the Dreamcast. And I feel like considering we're doing the Dreamcast thing, I feel I feel like my first Res experience should be on the Sega Dreamcast. So I did I did not download this version of it. Why don't we take a small break and then I'll talk to you all about Res and my various times okay. with Res. That sounds great. Cool. Bye-bye. See you soon. Hey, Brendan. Steven. Res. Uh, <laughs> Res. I'm excited to talk about Res. Res is a really cool game. I think I would say it's one of my favorites of all time, which is always sounds hyperbolic, but I do think for a lot of the reasons we just gushed about Tetris Effect, Res is pretty much that but applied to a a sort of arcadey rail shooter mm -hmm. the easiest way for me to describe res is if you've played sayonara wild hearts there's actually a lot of res dna there yeah sayonara wild hearts i think has more fun with sort of constantly changing kind of what genre of game it is like sometimes it has like a rhythm game flair to it sometimes it feels like a rail shooter sometimes it feels like almost a fighting game there's a lot of like you know as you play that game it's just an incredible experience another another huge plug for sign wild hearts that's a game i can recommend to anybody perfect perfect video game it's a perfect game <laughs> only talk about perfect video games on this episode yeah I'm sure there are way more people on the team than just this one guy, but I do know for a fact that Tetsuya Mizuguchi was the producer on Res and Tetris Effect. And I also think Medios and like a few other. I was going to say, yeah. So there's a yeah. there's a lineage here where he's been working on games for a long time, trying to do essentially what he did in the Tetris Effect through different avenues that aren't related to Tetris over the years. Res yeah. was one of them. Medios was one that he did with Sakurai of Super Smash Brothers fame, which is pretty wild. Yeah. We talked about Medios a yeah. little bit, I think in the DS, not that not the ds season premiere but our like extended thing on the patreon uh, i yeah. talked about it a little bit because i loved medios i had a really good time it's a great it. game yeah and then uh also luminous which was a psp game that i really loved ended up playing a version of it i think on the vita eventually because they eventually re-released it there uh but luminous is another game you can tell through medios and luminous that like they really wanted to get their hands on tetris eventually which is really funny but luminous is also available now on switch and i would highly recommend checking it out if you're interested at 
all. Uh, it's just another really cool take on a on a puzzle game. But I had no idea that he had worked on all of this stuff over the years. It's really cool to see that lineage, I think. Absolutely. And I think Res is a really still such a unique game that's aged so well. And I think also embodies sort of the spirit of the Dreamcast at its best, because Dreamcast was a system that I think was kind of put in a position where Sega had to just sort of try everything, <laughs> you know, so like I think like you have stuff like Shenmue, which is this like heavily funded. We're putting all our chips on this game to like be the hit. And then you have stuff like Res. It's such a cool and creative experiment, especially for the time. And I think there's also like a very close tie between the Dreamcast and just like arcades of the time. Like there's a lot of fighting games, a lot of racing games, sports games. Like it kind of feels like you have like an arcade from the early 2000s, late 90s, like as a system, which mm. is sick. That's kind of one of the many reasons I'm excited to really dive deep into that system. Res is like if the MoMA and like any rail shooter from that time fused <laughs> the, the plot of res which only seems to exist either in wikipedia formats or on the back of the actual game is that you are a hacker who is this is and maybe this is a dream i had or what i gained from the game but i remember <laughs> reading this at one point you mm-hmm. are a hacker there is a supercomputer called eden that is essentially trying to like shut itself down it has gained awareness and because of that it's trying to terminate itself which is like a really heavy idea that you don't really get in the game. Although there are like similar to Tetris effect, there are like emotions and themes that are explored that I think you could maybe like, once you are told that you can connect the dots, but that's not why you're playing it. Res is a rail shooter where you play in this very almost Tron like worlds, even on the Dreamcast. I actually first played this game on the PS2 and it's just stunning. Like the, the, the style of graphics here has aged really well. It is not too dissimilar from like early Star Fox polygons. Like everything is very abstract. And the way the game works is you're on the rails, but you can also change like the perspective you're facing. And you have like a cursor that when you hold the cursor, it highlights enemies or objects that are nearby. Mm. And from your body, you kind of extend like, I guess like missiles, but it's, it's very, it's not ever clear, like what you're actually firing. You just sort of like shoot off like a line uh, and then the enemies will like explode into color. And sometimes lines of code, maybe there is like on the top left, there's like a running line of code that's like interacting with what you're doing in the game, which is honestly sick. And every once in a while you can find an item called an overdrive or like it will destroy kind of everything around you. And similar to sort of the, the central theme of, of meditation, arguably the icon, the, the character you're playing as starts as like a person who's just sort of like floating in space. But as you get more power ups, you change form. And one of the highest forms is like a person sitting in kind of a meditative stance. And then the highest, highest form is like a little like Stanley Kubrick space baby that's floating around. So Mm. like, there's a lot of really surreal imagery. Like there's, there's a whole level that's like whenever you destroy an enemy, like a sort of like gaseous hieroglyphic appears and the music is like really, really intense, really cool. I guess it's like house or trance. I'm not sure the exact subgenre of like electronica, I guess, but it's like really, really incredible music. And there's only five stages. So this is a game you can beat like in one sitting. Nice. And there is a pretty active score chase element. Like once you beat a level, it will show you like, here's the percentage of the level like you got to see directly. Here's the percentage of enemies you destroyed. Um, You can always replay them. And then there are also like lost areas you unlock that are like kind of more challenging bonus levels. But it's like, it's just 
for for many reasons similar to Tetris Effect, the the big kind of pitch of the game is that everything you do interacts with the soundtrack. So there's kind cool. of like a trance like beat, and as you fire on enemies, it will like add sound and rhythm to the song. And also depending on your form, that sound and that that line you're shooting off will be different. So like in the space baby form, all the sounds are like a choir going like oh like at every shot. So it's like very kind of. I was worried that you're gonna be like it's babies just going way. <laughs> <laughs> No, thankfully they had some restraint. Uh, if we made res, it would be a fucking disaster. Um, it would just be like, have you heard of the high elves? Yeah, have, have you have you have you have you heard of the? Oh, oh. Yeah, so it's not that it is. It, it's a, actually it's a work of art. Weirdly enough, oh, um, nice. and all the levels are named after a planet. So I think it's uh, the Earth, the Mars. They're like it has like a the before. So the Earth, the Mars, the Uranus, and I think. I forgot what the final level was, but regardless, like each of the levels sort of has a distinct vibe. Like the first level very much feels like a Tron. Um, honestly, the first like couple levels have that have that aesthetic and that feeling. But mm. the last level stands out because the very last level of Res, without spoiling too much, there is a text narration of just sort of like evolution of life on earth so like it begins with this like very kind of simple beat where you're like underwater and life is beginning and then it advances and it almost has kind of like a near automata aesthetic which i wonder if that was an influence here because like i know yokotaro is very influenced by like kind of arcade games and he loves games that like really wear on their skin that they're a game even though there might be something deeper going on narratively yeah there are, there are many moments where there's like you know once you get like to land and there are like ships and weapons happening and like the aesthetic has that kind of monochromatic look to it and the song that plays on that level is so good like that that last level if you're not already loving the game that last level is like oh shit this is like this is an experience that will stay with me for a long time Mm. i think isolated the writing might come off a little bit like you know who are you man like it could be a little bit like that but because you're already so onboarded via the visuals and the music it does actually pack a punch to like all of a sudden be asked these questions about existence by a supercomputer that is also indirectly asking for help the thing that about that level that stays with me is that like you're getting this narration of evolution and then you're asked like why are you doing this and then the last thing that's said is help me which is so haunting and it's just like it's just a beautiful experience what a far cry from tetris effect (laughs) (laughs) it does it does have an uplifting feel to it though and i think like it's a game that you can be in one sitting that is so like 1000% focused on what it's attempted to accomplish mechanically and emotionally via the mechanics and the sound and the colors. Mm-hmm. And it's something you can return to kind of indefinitely. Res Infinite is the version you can get most easily. I, I got it on the on the Sony collection. And essentially what that is, is it's an HD port of the original. And it also comes with Area X, which is a new, largely the same team it's a new level that was designed for vr you can play without it i actually i was playing the beginning and i really liked it but i stopped because i could tell like this might this feels like really like tetris effect you can play without vr but area x feels like this should be in vr Mm. because the big thing is that you can you're not on the rails anymore you're freely flying around an area which i could see being really cool and magical in vr but is a little bit tedious on the controller Mm. because i think something about being on the rails in res does help you get 
get that kind of meditative focus. Whereas when I actually have control over where I'm flying, it takes a little bit away from that. Yeah. But, you know, whenever I get around to getting a VR headset, I definitely want to go back and play Area X and see how I feel. I've heard I've heard incredible things about it, but just being able to revisit Res and that being kind of like the first game I have played kind of in spirit of our Dreamcast episode, I am excited to check out that era and see like what creative experiments were happening at a really interesting turning point for games in general. And I'm just amazed at how well it holds up. And also like, I'm really curious, like if there are, you know, the thing that pops in my head is like, for whatever reason, recently in the discord, we were talking about like, what will Nintendo ever do with Star Fox? Is it just over? Like, does anyone care? And not that this is what to do, but I do think like playing Res, you immediately get like eight different ideas for like a cool rail shooter, you know? And like, yeah. I think that there's actually a lot to do in that genre that kind of remains unexplored. Honestly, up until Sayonara Wild Hearts, I think that's like the first game that really took Rez's baton directly. I mean, Rez has had a, I think, huge impact just culturally. And like, you can see some of its influence aesthetically and, and sonically. But I think like actually kind of building a game around being on the rails can be a really cool experience, especially when it's sort of designed around the sound the same way Sayonara Wild Hearts is. Mm. In that case, it kind of feels more like you're experiencing like a music video of an entire album versus like exploring the definition of life itself but it's such an emotional and gripping experience and i think like something about taking certain control away from the player and giving us very distinct control like we only have control over a certain number of things does really create that focus that can kind of put our minds in a place where we're sort of experiencing a story without realizing it and i think that's the beauty of res and of sayonara wild hearts that sounds like a really cool game about logging on <laughs> and just like surfing the net, you know, like what's my AOL keyword and how am I going to explain to everyone following me on Zanga that I'm like having a cool chill time and I can't wait to go to the mall later. Yeah, it, it, is, it is a little bit like that for sure. <laughs> I do think too, you, you mentioned on the DS episode we did that when you played Elite Beat Agents, you thought you were seeing the inside of my brain. Yeah. I think there's a little bit of res inside yours as well. I think it has that sort of like... I think that's true. I, I think you really love puzzles and abstract ideas and music and there's just like there's something about it that i think is going to resonate with you very directly resonate yeah i think it's, <laughs> it's really gonna fuck me up like i know i know <laughs> you know I, know I know for a fact that this game is going to be hugely important for me and i just really can't wait to eventually play it as much as i do want to play it on dreamcast there's definitely a part of me that wants to check out the vr one as well i think i could do the lineage and and, and see how i feel about it but yeah i just think that this game is going to be so cool i mean i've seen like clips here and there of it and i already know it's extremely my shit and obviously having played so many things that have been inspired by res and loving them so deeply like sayonara wild hearts which we continue to bring up on this episode for many wonderful reasons i'm, I'm gonna love it there's no there's no way that i'm not gonna love it it sounds like a like a really cool experience i think it's like isn't it in the smithsonian also yeah i think in 2012 there was a exhibit called games are art at the smithsonian yeah and i remember being obsessed with that because especially in 2012 that was a point in time i think games still struggle to be taken seriously in some ways i think there's still kind of a divide of people who think you know like oh all games are this or that or like you know it's a new enough medium that if you don't have constant exposure to it like you can convince yourself like oh it's not for me or it's for kids or it's for you know whoever something that i i'm really proud of 
doing this show is trying to encourage people to break through that and to, you know, I mean, we've seen so many of our friends who I think, you know, prior to our influence, maybe not to take full credit. I think there's, it's always within someone to have that interest. But I think like we often say, if you apply that idea to any other medium, like, Oh, books aren't for me. Like what? Like what? <laughs> you know. Like, <laughs> so I think, I think I'm really happy to have a platform to maybe give someone who is curious about games an extra push to get into it and realize, Oh my God, I love, this this is like now a positive part of my life like i'm glad to be able to do that in any way i think in 2012 games were at a really big turning point i honestly think you know bit of a left turn but i do think that the success of the last of us did a lot to really bring appreciation for games into a mainstream light you know i think that like regardless of your opinion on that game i do think that that game succeeding so wildly i do think proved a lot of people who wrote games off wrong yeah it's a little bit like serial and podcasting you know it's right. like serial wasn't like the first podcast obviously but it was a thing that really just kind of opened it up to a much 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 wider audience and i feel like the last of us is very similar in that regard i think you're right but back to the smithsonian like that exhibit existing even prior to last of us i was like yes i'm so glad this is like a thing res is there you know what else is in that exhibit are you feeling the the shiver down your spine Uh uh by azura by azura by azura yes oblivion was in the (gasps) smithsonian games art exhibit yeah oh my god i mean how could it not be it was 2012 like we didn't even i think skyrim had just come out so like you know yeah i'm looking at this list actually so they picked games from each system like yeah. in their in their era which is cool so dreamcast got two it got res and shenmue oh wow it wasn't i don't think like a metric of like these are the best games but i think it's like these are games that are exploring the medium of games you yeah. know and I it think- seems like there's a lot of them and then they had like specific ones that they actually had exhibits for so like a bunch of them made it into the collection but they had like exhibits for a few of them which is cool so res and shenmue both got their own little little stands to have been at the Shenmue exhibit in the Smithsonian, that is yeah. like, that's the dream. I haven't even played Shenmue, but that's just such a bragging thing to say, you know? Mass Effect 2, Steven, made it in there. I mean, yeah, that has to. Steven Spielberg presents Boom Blocks made it <laughs> for the Nintendo Wii. Remember that? American Dad Match 4 made it in there. That's pretty cool. I can't believe that. Wow, what an incredible thing. I Honestly, we could do a whole episode just about this, and I, 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 need to, yeah. I need to hit the eject button before I talk to you more about Brutal Legend. I feel like we should do something about the Smithsonian. <laughs> so that's all I have on Res for now. I imagine it's going to come up again in some capacity, and I'm really excited for you to play it, if only just to have you enjoy a piece of media I think you'll like. Star Fox Assault was in there, Stephen. What? Oh, <laughs> did, did I make this in a past life? Was this just like oh, something man. I did for fun? <laughs> sorry. Okay, okay. I really, sorry. I'm gonna get too distracted. Let me close all these tabs. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Uh, well, here is the Wikipedia for Boom Blocks. Pigma was in the Smithsonian in some way. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Incredible. If, if Pigma can make it into the Smithsonian Games or Art exhibit, you can do anything. That's really yeah. the message of this game chair sponsored episode thank you to steel series uh for sponsoring this episode thank you to steven spielberg for making boom blocks for the nintendo wii thank you to pigma for proving that anything is possible thank you pigma and thank you to the tetris effect connected for making me cry well yeah for real tetris let's take a break let's reflect on everything we've learned thanks to pigma then we'll come back (laughs) that sounds great all right See you later. Okay, see ya. Bye. All right, bye.
Welcome back. Boom Blocks is a puzzle game for the Wii console, mobile <laughs> devices, and Engage 2.0, developed by EA Los Angeles in conjunction with film director Steven Spielberg, who said, oh, yeah. and I quote, I wanted to show my kids that they could have fun playing games that are nonviolent and much more creative and strategic. That's honestly a nice ambition. It is to nice. Have. Yeah. It's like Robert Rodriguez making Spy Kids, you know? Right. <laughs> Some say Boom Blocks is the Spy Kids of the game medium. <laughs> they are saying that. I've, I've actually heard that a lot. Yeah. So perhaps not surprising <laughs> since last it's a week. a hard pivot. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes sometimes you just got to drift away from it. I segment. left you nothing. I left you scraps <laughs> to work with. I'll, I'll be honest. This is on me. Sometimes you got to power slide away from the ashes of a bit or conversation and just move towards, <laughs> you guessed it, Xenoblade Chronicles 3, yeah. a game that we are still playing a lot of. Heads up, I don't think we're going to get into any specific narrative spoilers here. That being said, like we talked about last week, the game's narrative and mechanics are deeply intertwined. That me even talking about the mechanics at all will spoil some things. So just a heads up that this conversation will be mechanically spoiler centric up until chapter four ish. So yeah. if you want to avoid that, I, I'd say go for it. I think if you are like on the fence, you know, it's it, it just best to avoid it. because it, It's so like it's so case by case and so like intertwined with the story that like if you are sensitive to spoilers in any way, I would say maybe just skip the segment until you played more of it. But if you're farther along or if you don't care, welcome to Xenoblade Chronicles 3, mechanical discussion, thanks to Pigma. Games are art. <laughs> so how's it been going? Uh, I'll, I'll say this much. I So last week when we recorded our first segment about Xenoblade 3, I had just started Chapter 4. I am still, story-wise, narratively, exactly where I was at. I have not progressed the main campaign at all past that point still i have played twice as much as i had played <laughs> last week so i think i'm like yeah. close to 30 hours i was close to 15 or so hours last time because what i what i realized uh, is that there's a whole other half of this game i was so engrossed in the narrative that i was just kind of like making my way through that not even i, I, would, I didn't even think i was doing it as quickly as possible i was still doing side quests here and there as i was seeing them in colonies and stuff but what i really didn't click with is that there's this whole other segment of this game that is like what i would call like the smooth brain part of it yes which is like just go out in the wilderness and look for question marks and like figure out what's going on out there and as it turns out and the reason i haven't progressed the story any further is there's like a ton of side content in this game that is really really compelling there are entire areas that i had missed be by just like focusing on the main campaign there are like entire zones and sectors there are entire colonies that i had missed there's so much video game here so i've just been going around and doing all of the side quests that i had missed for the first three chapters i guess not realizing that they were even really an option until now and on that front the game has been incredible uh because it just seems to be kind of uh blooming like an onion at outback yeah. steakhouse for me <laughs> i would actually compare it to you guessed it death stranding in the sense that around chapter three of death stranding the game allows you to do a lot of side content and the more you do like it's not quite directly communicated to the player how much you will benefit from doing a lot of the side quests in that chapter like that is the chapter where you can get roads and mm -hmm. pizza deliveries to get like you know mechanical backpacks where you can carry like three times the weight you can yeah. get delivery trucks like 
if you just kind of speed ahead, you're not going to get a lot of that. So actually, my foundational Death Stranding experience is like being invested in the story, playing the beginning chapters, and then just like really entirely focusing on that yeah. in chapter three until I felt like good about what I had done for the Midwest. <laughs> so <laughs> in Xenoblade, it's kind of similar where not to say too much about this narratively, but essentially, and you know, possible narrative spoiler here, but it's a story about rebellion. And this is likely to happen. One of the main kind of loops of the game is liberating colonies right. from the control of the bad guys. This was the big thing that I was talking about last week where I was yeah. like, there's a loop to this game that I don't think you had seen narratively yet. Yeah, and that, that is very much it is like you're making your way from colony to colony. You're busting up flame clocks, which is like the thing that the queen uses to siphon life energy from warring factions and essentially just like freeing the colonies from the tyranny of like needing to be at constant war uh and and letting like figure out their lives outside of that it's really cool what's great is that the game's writing is is strong enough that like it doesn't end there like when you free a colony there's usually a pretty divisive response from the people who live there and again like it took the heroes of the game a pretty significant amount of time to like really digest i mean it's very much like a you know for lack of a better comparison like plato's allegory of the cave like when you only know one existence for so long even when you're shown the truth a lot of people will actually be more comfortable defaulting to what they know over what is true Mm -hmm. um and that is something we see a lot in our life in society i mean like how many global threats that are very real are continuously denied out of comfort you know, or out of more malicious reasons, you know, right. I mean, and, you know, on one hand, it's human. It's it's even even if someone will come around eventually, it's so much to digest that it would be bad writing if the whole colony was like, yippee, you're right. Yeah, um, right. You know, yeah, yeah, so, there's, there's this uh, constant question of like, just because it's the way it's always been, does that mean it's OK? You know, which is like classic human folly of falling into that. yeah trap i think so and again with the gameplay kind of intertwining with the narrative like a lot of the quests sort of begin once you liberate the colony so every colony has a leader that is also usually uh what the game calls a hero so just in case you're playing xenoblade chronicles 3 and you're like you know what i love the six party system but i wish i had yet another character (laughs) to journey with me like you said there's a floating guest spot you get a hero kind of in the main story to introduce this idea and once you get access to that character in your party, you can also learn their class. So, you know, in the beginning, when you're able to multi-class characters, you can only switch them between the six starting classes. But then once you get your first hero, all of a sudden there's a new class. And then whenever you liberate a new colony and you meet a new hero who joins your party, you also gain access to their class. And so far, at least, when you get a character, when you get a hero, there is a character in the main party who is called the class inheritor. So the first class you get is i think um like a fencer or something yeah and the inheritor is noah um so noah can can switch to that class right away everyone else in the party can eventually but they need to either fight alongside that hero or someone as that class right until they've like seen it enough that they can switch and then of course like every character can be any class but there there are certain characters who are like they will learn the class faster 
So you can mm-hmm. see in the class menu, like, okay, like Lands has an S rank with heavy guard. He can learn that class very quickly. I mean, he starts at that class, but this is an example. But, you know, he might be like a D in another class. And that doesn't mean that he'll be bad at it, but it's going to take much longer to level it. Right. So essentially, on a gameplay perspective, whenever you liberate a colony, there is sort of like one, you're getting a really cool story beat. And that's something that I'm really amazed by is that these side quests where you meet these heroes and you save their colony and you get their class they feel as important as the main story at least so far like it it does really feel like how on earth could i have played this game without meeting this character and seeing their journey it's pretty wild yeah what i enjoy about this is that it kind of shows you how well these six characters have been granted the power that kind of makes them like chosen one ish any one of these heroes could have been the protagonist like they all have (laughs) you know their own story going on that's equally important they're all like kind of learning the world in their own way and trying to make a difference in their own way and you can also see like which of these heroes is more open to the idea that things aren't as they should be there's a character who is what's called a war medic who's essentially a mechanic who like even before the flame clock is destroyed they just like creating things and they're bummed that they have to create them for destruction yeah uh, if you like that dynamic you should watch the movie the wind rises i was just that's about to say that yes <laughs> but uh that's a really cool like conflict for the character that like lends itself well to like oh they're going to be pumped that this isn't the only thing they have to do right so like from what i know of xenoblade chronicles 2 because this has been talked about a lot in the discord and i've been following like the discussions about this game Avoiding spoilers, of course, which huge plus to the Discord. Everyone is very diligent with like yeah. blocking out spoilers. But from what I know of Xenoblade Chronicles 2, there was sort of like a gotcha system with like yes. sort of like the hero equivalent character spot in the party. And here it's like we're specifically designing characters who are like made to be a class you acquire, made to be plot relevant, and like made to be exciting to like meet and experience yeah. their story. And that creates like a really compelling reason to just explore and see more of the world. And by extension, learn about more of the world and also get more class variety, which like I am so addicted to this almost Octopath-esque class system where like you learn a class, keep a skill from it, can use that skill independent of the class equipped. Like I just have everyone kind of going through every class right now. And it's so much fun. Like it's there's so much I showed this game to a couple of friends last night and it just looks indiscernible once you have all the the stuff like the yeah. game really does teach you well. But if you just were watching someone play this game at the point I'm at in it, it looks like nonsense, but it really does have a logic and it has a loop. It's just so well done. Yeah, I really appreciate the the seventh hero spot specifically because I, I feel like the team composition is kind of a little bit inflexible at the beginning of the game because I mean even Tyon one of the characters in your party like mentions that to you like he says that in a cutscene is like yes having two attackers two healers and two tanks is you know generally the way you should go about it and having this seventh slot that can be something else and like throw off that balance for better or for worse is I think really fun and is a really interesting thing. And I've been having a really good time exploring weird team compositions just because I have that flexibility there. I also, again, as I mentioned, because I'm at the beginning of chapter four and I'm now going back and doing all the side quests that I missed, I have just been getting heroes like left and right. I have so many now to choose from. <laughs> and I have so oh, many yeah. classes and 
pretty much everybody except for I would say two characters have inherited more than one class at this point. And that has allowed for just like the wildest team possible. And I love that experience. Like I love that experience of getting a new class, learning how to play as them. Like I will always switch over to them for a little bit and see what that feels like. Um, The way that you know, extra seventh member fits into a chain attack, for example, is really fun and weird. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love that experience of like launching into a chain attack and seeing hopefully uh, what what their power is and how they add or change to that battle. It, it's it's a really cool system specifically. I, th- I think it's really fun. You add to that the Ouroboros of it all. The fact that these six people have the ability to like fuse into like an Evangelion kind of mech nightmare monster is really cool. And they again, going back to what we were talking about last week but they continue to unveil these new mechanics at a pace that i think is actually really easy to keep up with whereas i feel like in almost any other game i would have been overwhelmed by this but you know even like okay all of these characters can interlink and they all have like a skill tree essentially associated with that linked pair but at a certain point they realize that there's always somebody driving when they interlink like there's always like somebody who is like the lead in that case and somebody else who is kind of like in the background so then they unlock the ability for you to swap who's in the lead and that like unlocks new different fusions of those two people which is wild and those also have their own skill trees like the game just keeps unfolding more and more and more mechanics into it um and i i don't mind in a way that i think is like miraculous for a game like this i will also say like now Narratively, the game hasn't really slowed down or gotten any less interesting at all, because as you were saying, the side quests feel meaty enough that I feel compelled to go through them because I know I'm going to get a hero. I know I'm going to get a class at the end of it, but I am just like curious about the new areas of the world that they're going to bring me to that I don't know exist in some cases, like finding an entire new colony is wild. Realizing this was a big thing that you told me about, but realizing you could go back to the first colony from the beginning of the game and like try and liberate them wild. Like I I, would have never occurred to me the idea of like, oh, let me go backwards to move forwards is also very cool. It's also worth mentioning that when you liberate a colony and you destroy their flame clock, it raises the like alertness level of that side of the war, like whatever faction that is that you're liberating. Uh, And that means that you'll see more enemy units from that faction like out in the open world. Uh, So the the more you liberate, the more there's kind of a target on your back, which I think is this fun kind of risk reward system. Not that there's really any reason to not liberate a place, because again, you're getting so many rewards and so much extra stuff. But I do appreciate that it's making the game slightly more difficult alongside that. It feels like this really natural progression loop for the game that I uh, have just like settled into completely. It's really it's really wonderful. I think the warning level also kind of incentivizes you to go back to the main plot eventually. So it kind of feels like, okay, Mm. like liberate a couple colonies, then go back to the main story, then go back to that. And like, yeah, I like that kind of flexibility. I think the mechs are like the one area of the game where I'm like, there's part of me that feels this might almost be too much. But I think the brilliant choice with those mechs is that when they arrive like you know in in the middle of the battle when a mech shows up or you summon the mech it does weirdly simplify things because like before Mm. the mechs are there it's seven characters but then when you summon the mechs it's three and they each have a very like simple role like the the first three mechs are very much like attacker tank healer so i think it it is actually nice that like when you kind of ascend into mechhood it kind of (laughs) resets the playing field where it's okay now you're actually back to like each person has a distinct role and that that keeps it i think from feeling a little too overwhelming because that 
that's like the one area where I'm like, man, it is also mechs. Like I'm trying to keep track of like, yeah. how does this class play? There's seven characters and there's also mechs. I'm like, wow, that's a lot. But it does kind of pull everything into focus, which is cool. One of my favorite things uh, just about like the really big bat, because it usually takes a while for you to want to jump into a mech. Like usually you're not going to start a battle and immediately hit the like interlink button and jump into mechs. So there's this thing called interlink level that happens while you're in kind of longer battles where the more you're using your uh, essentially like role abilities, like depending on what class you are, like if you're a healer, the more you're healing your teammates or like buffing or debuffing or whatever you'll fill up the interlink level meter so essentially what that means is like it, it goes only from one to three so if you do it at level three the the mech that you jump into or the Ouroboros or whatever it's called it's going to be more powerful my move the thing that i've been really enjoying is leveling it up to level three jumping into the mech and then immediately doing a chain attack i didn't realize that this was the case but if you jump into a mech at interlink level three and then do a chain attack you do the chain attack as all the mechs uh and it's like what wildly overpowered in a way that is like so fun and absolutely ridiculous to pull off uh you will just like absolutely eviscerate an enemy and then get like 1000 times the experience that you were supposed to for it <laughs> which actually does kind of lead me to one of the one of the weird things about this game um that i think is like a blessing and a curse a little bit that i've seen some people talk about in the discord and you and i have talked about a little bit off the show as well but maybe it's just because the game is good and like the side quests are fun enough that like everyone is doing all of them but i have felt pretty overpowered for most of the game which you know is not a bad thing for me because usually the easier uh, an rpg of this scale is the more likely i am to finish it but i have noticed that i i feel like i need to employ less strategy in larger fights just because i've been so over leveled for some of the stuff that i've been doing and that goes hand in hand with like the chain attacks being like so overpowered which i think is in a fun way but also they have this other thing uh where at any camp that you stop at you can essentially train up and training up involves you having this like bonus experience that you've been accumulating by doing chain attacks and by doing some side missions and by doing some like out in the world kind of like field events as they pop up uh very mmo shit but you'll just accumulate all this bonus experience and when you're at a camp you can go and train up and spend that bonus experience to level everybody up and i was doing that every single time they let me just because i thought that that was keeping me like at pace with where the game was at and now i have found myself like for real like actually 10 levels above everything that i'm supposed to be doing and everything feels like way too easy at the moment um so my big recommendation if you're earlier in the game than we are is to lightly use the bonus experience thing i would say like use it in events where you feel like you're underpowered for things or else it could wildly get out of hand like right now i'm in a space where i'm just not going to touch it for like another 10 hours probably yeah um, and kind of level myself out i think the, the game does a good job showing you for both the main quest and the side quest what the recommended level is so i think yeah. like as long as you're within like three levels more or less of that like you will have a good time and yeah. again this is also all subjective like you might enjoy just powering through it but i do think you won't be able to get like there's so many mechanics here that you won't really get to enjoy yes. quite as much if you don't have to yeah and again that might be you know you might just be more interested in seeing the story and and the world so that's fine but i do think if you are like us and you want to you know feel the mechanics a little bit more directly the bonus experience is seemingly more in place of grinding right. than of needing to use it every time because i also was using it every time and then you kind of gave me that warning and i caught myself like kind of powering through a lot of stuff which you know i think does de-incentivize like experimenting with the classes and seeing what works yeah that's the big thing for me is like i, I want to be able to like feel and understand how a class is changing the combat uh and you don't really when you're so overpowered that every attack like wipes out a third of an enemy's 
yeah you know what i love to see too is that i'm getting access to classes now that are really further stretching the definition of like what a healer can do or what a tank can do because like the war medic for example is really good at healing almost every attack does something and also heals in like an aoe and they can also put down zones that boost defense so they're a really good support unit but they also like do a pretty good amount of damage they have a gun and they a lot of the healing moves are also like while they're attacking Mm -hmm. so like that role is actually really like you could actually have a party where like that's the only healer and there's a lot of synergy where like you're doing a pretty good amount of damage as the war medic and also healing while doing it medic gunner seems to be the most straightforward like you are healing you are doing like a lot of healing there's also some buffs And then Tactician, the other starting healing class, feels a little bit more like a red mage where like you are a little bit more damage focused, like the healing is good, but not great. But you're also a lot about like debuffing and buffing. So there's like kind of a jack of all trades energy to the Tactician that isn't really there for the war medic or the uh, medic gunner. So I just love that that there's such a distinction between those three classes and those are the three healing classes I have. So like I I, right now I have a party where I have like three healers because I'm just like the war medic is kind of doing enough damage alongside the damage classes that I kind of like having this added security of two other healers. And I think by having so many healers, you can see that by taking the pressure off from only healing, they get to do the abilities of buffing and debuffing more easily because mm-hmm. they aren't constantly worried about healing and reviving. So you get to actually see how that impacts the party. Yeah. Which is so cool. Yeah. I, I have, as I mentioned, unlocked just like so, so, so many classes and I've, I've added a couple more healers to that list. One of the more interesting ones, I won't say too much about it, but one of the more interesting ones is a little bit like the war medic where there's kind of a more attack focused thing, but instead of healing, it's more aligned with like the tactician. So you're, it's more about buffing and debuffing along with attack which is technically considered a support but is like very very much attack focused which is really cool it's a really cool spin on that and and is not a situation where you feel like you're constantly topped up on health uh, but is wildly helpful in situations where there's like big groups which actually leads me to another thing mechanically not that i want them to add more mechanics but one thing that i do wish was in here would be the (laughs) the ability to like swap classes or heroes on the fly i think would be really nice Mm -hmm. because every once in a while i'll get into a battle and realize that my team comp is like not quite what i want it to be and just kind of like muscle through it and then get to the end and then after that i'm like well now it's too late and it worked anyway even though it was set up in you know with these characters or whatever and this hero but i do kind of wish i had more flexibility like in battle like i like that i can switch characters on the fly but being able to switch classes or heroes on the fly i think would be really helpful yeah that'd be cool i could see that maybe being like a late game like asset eventually like because mm. i think the other cool thing about liberating colonies is that once you gain access to that colony the more quests you do for that colony and the more you help that colony you gain like affinity levels with them that also give you it's almost like persona s ranks but with a place instead yeah so like if you're friendly enough with the faction you'll get like oh okay like your movement speed is faster uh one really big one from the colony with a war medic is now that i I can climb vines now so if i see like you know vines on a cliff i can climb up that so there's a whole new traversal mechanic i didn't have before it's really incredible i i do i do 
like the idea of switching classes on the fly. One thing, though, that the game does really well is if you lose a battle, it first asks you if you want to retry, which every RPG should do. Let yeah. me retry a boss battle. Don't make me watch the two-hour cutscene <laughs> before again. You can retry the battle, and also it automatically brings you to the menu screen before the fight starts. So you can So at the that. very least, yeah. Yeah, if you lose a battle, you can retry, and you can actually change your whole you know equipment and classes and see how that works. Yeah. And sometimes that is the answer. But I do I do like I mean there are some games that are that are kind of based around that idea of changing classes on in the moment. FF102 weirdly is like kind of entirely focused on that idea, mm. which I think is one of the cooler aspects of that game. So We'll see what happens. It might it might be an option later. Who knows? Yeah. How are you feeling about it, like narratively and and just game wise? Like, are you still as high on it as you were last week? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the story definitely slows down after the first chapter, like, and slows down meaning like it's not as like cutscene heavy and yeah. as dramatic. Yeah. As I mentioned last week, that first hour is so tightly considered. Like, it's definitely yeah. you can tell that they focused so much on making sure the intro of this game was completely rock solid. And then that level of attention is not given to the rest of the game. That doesn't mean that it's bad in any way. It just means it's not like batting 100. You know, it's not like yeah. perfect. It, it reminds me a lot, actually, of Final Fantasy VII, <laughs> where like those opening hours in Midgar are the really tightly considered, really effective, really dramatic moments. Yeah. And when you get to the world map, there are a lot of really fun vignettes, but it kind of like it's more about like, OK, like we're going to loosen the reins of the narrative control a bit and let you just kind of see the world. Right. And I think that that works really well. I think that like. It is actually a breath of fresh air like, you know, after four, five hours of like really like high stakes drama and setup. Right. It's now like, cool. Now you have all the tools you need to enjoy the game, like go out and do your thing. Yeah. And I think that having the little vignettes with the heroes does a lot to make the world feel really rich. You know, because I, I now have this idea of like, oh, OK, like I know what's going on in all these places. Yeah. And I think that does a lot, too, because I think like one thing I'm running into more is the I don't want to say technical issues because the game runs fine. But I do think that the feeling of awe and wonder is a little bit lessened despite the performance of the switch. Like mm. there are there are areas where the game feels like it's kind of like really doing its best to hold it together. <laughs> like <laughs> there was one point where I was like going up this cliff and essentially the land before time that was just like honestly really beautiful. But the whole camera was shaking as I was going up oh, really? the cliff and like you sure that wasn't just one of the supply drops dropping because the whole screen shakes on that no, it, it, it really wasn't it was like actually like graphically yeah, fucked up. It, yeah it was like for minutes yeah i will say that i've had the game crash on me also like i was in the middle of yeah. combat and the game just dropped and i lost like it was only like five minutes because the autosave is very generous maybe maybe that's yeah. why maybe they know <laughs> yeah it, it's really like it's not an issue for me this game is so purposeful in its art direction and in the design of the world that it's still like stunning yeah but i do think like if there's one complaint i have it's like i'm often like man if this was on like a better piece of hardware yeah. this would be a jaw-dropping moment and instead it's really cool yeah <laughs> so like it's not it's not a huge deal but it is it is a it is a thing that's on my mind in moments especially like coming out of, i feel like the game that we keep comparing this to is tales of arise and, and the art direction yeah. and the world size and just oh like God. the awe yeah. 
of that world is so wild. I'm, I'm specifically thinking of like one of the last areas when you're in like the main quest of like taking out the five lords, the fifth lords place just being like mostly castle. Like that's a thing that I can't see this game pulling off. Just yeah. just like purely from like a hardware power perspective. Yeah. So it, it's the first time I've really like I know people have been kind of complaining about this aspect of the switch for a long time. And, and you know, ever since the GameCube, I feel like every system after the GameCube has been pretty far behind hardware wise. Yeah. And I think the switch is like definitely better than it has been before. But it's still like I, I do think for the games that are coming out on this between like you know, we talked about this a little bit with like the Pokemon news. Like we're both really excited for Scarlet and Violet. But I can see like the more big open world games come out for the switch. I'm like, man, I do see where things have to be pulled back a little bit. Yeah. And this is an intentional choice by Nintendo, to be clear as well. Like that. Yeah, that was one of the I think the most illuminating bits of Reggie Fizeme's book when I was reading that was there's a there's a whole piece of a chapter uh, in talking about the strategy behind launching the DS and and the decision to do the DS in general that very much was Nintendo purposely deciding like we're going to deviate from what Xbox and uh, PlayStation are doing and try and make experiences separate from just is this box more powerful than the last box which you know is it works for them up to a certain point these are the situations where like once it overstays its welcome a little bit too long you start to see those cracks in in the edges um and you start to you know see the need for some kind of upgraded hardware so i feel like we're just like seeing the end of the life cycle which usually i find in other in other consoles is like the point when you would see you know like a shadow of the colossus at the end of the ps2 life cycle is like oh my god the ps2 was capable of this the whole time like oh my god i can't believe it and that's a little bit how i feel about xenoblade 3 like running through this world i'm like kind of amazed that it looks as good as it does but it definitely absolutely Especially as we were talking about, like compared to Tales of Arise from last year, it it not only is impressive on the Switch, but like shouldn't be impressive on the Switch. You know, that should I I would kind of want that to be closer to the norm, which I, I think just just implies like. There's got to be something new coming down the line. And and to be clear, like I think that that design philosophy of Nintendo, I really do admire. And I think that leads to really ageless design. I mean, yeah, Wind me Waker, for example, I think like the entire Super Nintendo catalog, even aspects of N64 in certain games, like do have either like a relic of that era or are just timeless. You know, I think yeah. uh, especially Game Boy Advance, I think like Super Nintendo Game Boy Advance, that aesthetic is immortal. That yeah. is still sought after. It's still great. And, and to double that- back on Pokemon, also, I, I was listening to uh, the Waypoint podcast recently, and Renata Price had this moment talking about the new the new Pokemon games that was essentially just like, this is, you know, regardless of how this game looks, because they were also talking a lot about how this game looks graphically, regardless of how the game looks, it is exciting to see Game Freak make a Pokemon game that is close to what people have actually been asking for for like decades. Like totally the ability to do the gyms in any order, the ability to have other things besides just the eight gym badges to do, having an open world, having more freedom, having more agency like that is all really exciting and really cool. You know, Game Freak as a company is always going to make games that kind of look at this point. I mean, what we know of them, the track record is like, you know, a generation behind or whatever. But it is exciting gameplay wise to know that they're pushing that shit in the future. And I feel like Xenoblade is this situation where like, I do want the best of all worlds for this because it's, it's hitting so many high notes. It's like, yes, this this should be, as I mentioned last week, like this should be in contention for game of the year alongside Elden Ring for me, at least. And I I just wonder if like the game is going to crash on me more, if I'm going to have more like weird technical issues over time, is that going to be the case? There's another, there's another aspect not to dunk on this thing because to be clear, I love it, but there is another aspect 
of this and maybe this is just because of the the order of events that i've been doing again like starting chapter four and going back and doing all the side quests and collecting all the heroes that i missed a lot of these side quests and a lot of like finding colonies and a lot of meeting new heroes is kind of the same story over and over again, just told in a different way. A lot of it is like you run into a new person. You're obvious. They're like named and look fucking incredible. They're just like the coolest person you've run into so far. So, you know, they're going to be a hero immediately and they hate you because you confuse into an Evangelion robot. And then like <laughs> over the course of the next like hour to hour and a half, you're, you're going to convince them to like change their ways and maybe listen to you. And it always is just like you just need to have a conversation then it all works out which is like one of my least favorite writing tropes is like i'm not gonna listen to you i'm gonna fight you first and then you fight and then after that like when you kick their ass and they're lying on the ground you're like we're actually not bad guys they're like oh shit wow that's cool do you want to hang out (laughs) I, i see what you mean i mean i think for me it's like this sort of hero recruitment in another game would have been just like a standard side quest that you do. Like, you know, it just sort of happens. Yeah. I see the hero quests as Xenoblade three, taking that type of open world side quest and giving it a little bit more meaning, but I think it does still have the DNA of that type of side quest. So it will kind of feel inherently repetitive in some ways, but I think that this might be like, okay, maybe it's just like time to do if, and that might go back to the sort of the warning level going up. So maybe I just do a few, go back to the main quest and then do a few later. That way it's like, because they are sort of like, (laughs) as much as I enjoy them, there is like a filler episode quality to them where it's like, okay, the the main event is not going to change. We're just meeting a new character, which I think is always fun. Like you said, they're always like, a cool character yeah and it does kind of feel like there's almost a weird pokemon aspect to it where it's like yes i got the new hero and i can learn their class you know so there's there's a lot to like about them but i see what you mean yeah Yeah. it it, it kind of it's kind of this catch-22 situation because like you want the side quests and you want collecting these heroes and having them join your team to be this like big bombastic moment but also because they have to also be missable content in a way like because not everybody is going to go collect every hero and find every side quest and whatever they can't really impact the story that much so there's only i think so much they can do which is actually one of my favorite things about it uh about the mechanics specifically having this like class inheritor specifically take on the class of whoever you just unlocked as a hero so you can add the hero to your party obviously but you can also have this person in your party just take on their class means that narratively there's always going to be this link between somebody in your main party of six and this new hero so you're not only just learn like it's not always just oh i hate you because you're ouroboros oh never mind now that we've had a conversation i want to join your team there's usually this other aspect where you're learning more about one of the six party members as well like you're learning more about yeah how they operate, how they think, who they are as people, which, you know, this game has no shortage of moments like that. But I do think linking that to this hero structure is also really important as well, because you're learning more about their history and how they how they came up and like how hard it is for them to deviate from this world where it's just constant war that they were literally bred for. I I think that's compelling, you know, by itself. And that's the reason that's the reason I haven't gone back into doing the main quest until I'm done kind of cleaning up a lot of this side content is because I just like learning more about these six people. It's also really cool to see how other people in the world choose to find meaning when their sole reason for meaning is taken away. Because mm. that's like, I think that's kind of why so many characters struggle after the flame clock is destroyed. It's like, well, I knew it was very, in a way, convenient to know exactly how I was supposed to live my life. Yeah. And now, given this freedom, 
it's overwhelming. And like, we all have moments of our lives like that. Like, I think for me, I mean, not exactly, but you know, for me, like, I think the beats of that story remind me of like going to college for the first time. And that jump of (laughs) like, you know, in high school, your whole schedule is planned out. You know, I mean, like you have your nights and weekends free and, you know, the holiday vacations and stuff, but like Mm -hmm. you are kind of conditioned to live life in a certain way. Even if you like rebel against it, it's all, you know, all you know is like math at nine history at 10. And then when you go to college, likely you, (laughs) there's going to be like a day of the week where it's like, yeah, you have a class at one and then the rest of the day is yours. And it's like, that should be exhilarating. And I think in, in my case, it was really hard at first because like very few kids at that age have been like alone with their own thoughts for that long or like <laughs> right. been given that amount of freedom. And I think freedom is inherently uncomfortable sometimes when you're not used to it, you know, hmm. like having to define yourself and, and choose what you do with your time can be as exciting as it is terrifying. Yeah. And I think in the context of this world story, they explore both avenues very well you know you see how every character chooses to digest that information yeah i also think it's interesting we, we haven't mentioned this at all story-wise but there is this kind of like class hierarchy also in the two factions where based on like how good they are at killing they will go up in rank like their colony will go up in rank it starts at dirt rank at the very bottom and yeah. goes up to gold rank i think it's i think it's dirt iron silver gold if i'm not mistaken I think it's actually more I think it's because this is actually something that stood out to me and was kind of like a cool like, oh, my God, because the characters in the very beginning, the three, uh, they start with Uni, Lanz and Noah. They say that they're copper rank. Oh, yes. Hearing hearing that I was okay, like that probably means they're like newbies. They're climbing the way up, but they're like, you know bottom of the ladder but like they're they're there then you learn there's dirt rank and the dirt rank people are saying like in tin rank they get like canned food as like a i wish we had canned food yeah so to me i'm like oh there is a really intense and dramatic hierarchy here where like it must be at the very least dirt tin copper you know iron bronze like like there's so many levels to it and that's like yeah that that to me was actually very terrifying. Yeah, that, like there's that many levels to the society. But to double down on what you're talking about before, I, I feel like even having that hierarchical structure uh, makes going and finding new colonies really interesting because you get to see this whole kind of like breadth of how people are living. Like they're all just they're all bred for war. To be clear, like they're all yeah. just here to like kill the other faction. But there is a colony that I found recently that was like a gold rank colony that you liberate. Uh, and that experience is very interesting and very different from like going back to your first colony that's tin rank, or there's another one pretty early on that is like a dirt rank colony. And when you liberate them, they're like, you know, we're not getting any help from the castle. Like we're not getting any help from the queen. So removing the flame clock from the situation doesn't really change our odds of survival that much. So we might as well try this. Like we're not going to move up in rank clearly because we don't have the equipment we need to do so so we might as well try this other avenue where we have freedom and that's like that's their reasoning for doing it whereas the gold rank colony is like a little bit apprehensive about leaving their ranks you know it takes a lot more convincing it takes a lot more effort to leave um and that that also is fascinating to me uh just from like a narrative world building perspective uh i i'm very interested in in the differential between all that stuff 
What was funny is like there was a moment where I was showing my friends the game and I stumbled into a story beat where the villains who sit on stage are revealed. And I got really nervous. I'm like, I don't want this to be the only beat you see in this game. (laughs) But that was actually the point where they both their eyes both lit up and they're like, I'm all in. I might get this because like (laughs) I think it's weird that the villains add levity. But I do think like after you get that really, really harrowing intro to the game, the fact that like you kind of love to hate these like cartoonishly evil villains does like level the stakes a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm worried it might do too much. Like it's like kind of like a fine balance of like, give me a little bit of room to like distance myself from how like emotionally devastating this is by making it a little cartoony, but also don't like totally remove it from any sense of grounded emotion to the point where I forget why I'm fighting and what I care about. You know, that's kind of where I'm still at with the villains. Have you gotten far enough in chapter four? for to see any big plot reveals regarding those villains they're still twirling their mustaches so like i'm getting okay. a clear sense of, of of what they might be thinking but it's still very much like ah yes the futile attempts of the hero are beginning to spoil <laughs> okay i think yeah. i think i'm then a little bit further into chapter four than maybe the beginning i might have i might have progressed a little further i just don't remember but the the first like really big kind of like plot reveal moment about them they're called the consoles uh about the console yeah. is like awesome it's like really really good uh and i think you're gonna be very excited about it but it is interesting still to think about because i i mean again we're only on chapter four this is like a hundred something hour video game and i'm very much playing now at the pace that i usually play games at which is like doing everything so this game is going to take like forever for me to finish uh so we're still like in the first act of the game and i feel like i know so much about the stakes and the world and what our quest is and like how this can end that it makes me think there's some kind of like final fantasy 6 dragon quest 11 heel turn mm. that's gonna happen like i oh, wow. I, I feel like there's yeah. got to be a lot more to this than than we know just in terms of where this can go narratively kind of like tales of arise like going and doing the five lords is not the only thing that is available in that game i feel like right now i'm just kind of on this pretty straight and narrow quest to like go find a city and then obviously like i probably have to go take out the queens or something there's got to be more to it than that and i i am very interested to see if that's going to go off the rails you know because right now now yeah. it seems really concise and really intentional in a in a way that from what I know about the stories of the first two games, those ones really just kind of like sprawl out and get wild. I'm, I'm hoping that this game stays as focused as it is, but I also feel like there's got to be some kind of big reveal coming and I'm, I'm excited to see what yeah. that is. So I'm I'm getting pretty close to diving back into like main story beats and I can't wait to see where that's going to take me. Yeah, I'm trying to, uh, I'm at a point in my party composition where people are playing as classes that I really don't want them to be, but I'm just doing it for like mm. the the skills they can get. So I think once I have a clear sense of like, okay, like I think this composition works well. And a lot of that was helped by getting a couple new classes. Like I think having lands as the war medic, one just feels canon. I love it. And I think that goes into like, you were saying, you know, learning more about the characters. I think just the subtle implication that lands is perfectly suited for a healer class. Mm-hmm. is like it, it says something about him that i think is really beautiful that coincides with the theme of the game of like you are not what society tells you to be right you know if i had to like choose one theme of the game that seems to be the thing they're really drilling home and that applies to the classes as well where like lands doesn't have to be the guy that gets hit a lot he can also be the like the heart of the team yeah which i think is like really beautiful and that's it's cool to like get even if it's not intentional it's cool to get that feeling while i'm just grinding and leveling up classes yeah you know 
I also think it's really important that they put you in the shoes of like your two de facto protagonists being Noah and Mio, who are both offseers for their respective factions, right? Or at least like it's almost like the the accidental hubris of the queens, I think, to have offseers at all in in their units. Just this idea of like, oh yeah, we're breeding these people for war, but we're gonna have a specific class of unit that is like trained in empathy is like accidentally the thing that's gonna undo them. You know, this idea that they're gonna create like sympathetic and empathetic people is gonna be like of course Noah and Mia are gonna wake up to the idea that like maybe we shouldn't be murdering each other because like life is precious because that's the whole reason that we exist is to play the flute to like send people's life force into the afterlife is really fascinating I I think I think that's a really cool choice I I love even just the first few hours where like Noah is the protagonist before you even meet the other three I love Noah as a protagonist I think he's like at least of the other two games uh, between Shulk and Rex and one and two like Noah is by far the most complex and the most interesting and and i love how reserved he is at all times um and 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 how kind of like he he has a very focused vision i think of his own morality and how that does not fit into the war structure of the world uh and it's almost like as soon as he gets ouroboros and is able to like be free from that and is able to be the person who was like liberating other colonies from that it like really wakes him up and turns him into a hero whereas he's kind of like latent for the beginning like you see him in like one of the earliest cutscenes is like a flashback to him really early on this is like the first hour of the game you can already tell that he's uneasy about the whole situation and I, I love how that unease kind of like blossoms into him actually becoming like a for real like by the books sci-fi fantasy hero yeah I think it's also I always love the arc of a character who is inherently a pacifist, but they have to learn when it's the right time to actually fight. Yeah, like that is such a cool like that gives the fight so much meaning, you know, right. when when it's like OK, like I actually do have to take a stance here. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, the danger of pacifism is is complacency, which is the whole society, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, which in turn, you know, I mean, they're all fighting in a war, obviously. But I think like Noah's disinterest in fighting, like he's in a world where fighting is necessary to create a different difference yeah but also in a different way and i think like i think it's also cool to see you know mio by by comparison is much more kind of directly at least early on is much more directly connected emotionally to her two squad mates like yeah she's much more of like an active leader and seems to be like kind of friendlier with them like noah is also kind of introverted with with like he's obviously friends with lands and uni but they kind of tease him for sort of being like in his head all the time yeah. you know like he's sort of like like lands and uni are both very like extroverted and and like hot-headed people and Noah is like the one kind of rubbing his temples as they argue you know <laughs> so it's like it's fun to see the flip in the other trio yeah uh, it's a good video game <laughs> I also forgot we were recording again. This happens every time we talk about Xenoblade. I'm like, yeah, this is a cool afternoon chat with my close friend, Brendan. But uh, it is on air. So that's pretty cool. I just I'm so glad that it's still so good. And I I think maybe my move now is because I really do have like you know uh the burden of choice i have like the netflix level of options when it comes to classes that i can choose uh for all of my characters <laughs> so I'm, I'm like really in a space because I, I was kind of where you were at where it's like oh yeah i'm training up people in classes that i really don't want them to be like proficient in just because it feels like a waste to not have them leveling something up i now have so many options available to me that i like kind of don't even know what to do with myself um which is honestly a more fun place to be uh to- yeah to just like be experimenting at all times. And I just, we haven't even mentioned this, but I love how everybody's outfits change when you change the classes. Um, You can like lock them into specific clothes, you know, based on certain classes. I think if you level the class up to five or 10, you can like permanently have them wearing that class's outfit, but it's really fun to just have them all like, 
swap all the clothes that they're wearing. It's really cool. Oh, good game. I love that. the. I mean, it's a little bit of pressure, but I do like that the game guides your hand a little bit with like once you have a character who hits level 10 in a class, they're like, hey, it's best if you like change them. Like, yes. You don't want to just have them like stagnate in this class. Yeah. And I, I know for a fact that at a certain point you can get it to 20. Yeah. So there is like a there's like a level break. I'm curious about that. Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't know how spoilery this is, but I do think that like in addition to the heroes eventually in the game, I read that like you can do like quests for that character that essentially like I think either when your affinity reaches a certain point or if you've done a quest for them that maybe pops up later in the game, you like advance that class and then it could level up to 20 or Mm. something something Mm. like that yeah but you know again that kind of goes into what you said about the game sort of blossoming like all the tools and all the things you can get are all kind of like slowly revealed as you play the game yeah which is i think the way to do it in a game like this my my worst fear is that you have to level up the classes using napon coins which i'm not finding enough (laughs) of even in uh classes that are like lower than s rank I find that it's not, it doesn't take too much time to level them up to 10, mm. even without not on coins. Like, I think, like, if they're S rank, I think it takes, like, yeah, it's pretty fast. But yeah, I, I do think, like, the not on coins are where, like, this game could have been a monetization nightmare. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I, for and real. I do think, because you got, you got the expansion pack, right? I did. The, I got the, the I got DLC. the DLC. I did. You don't, you don't get a whole lot uh, off the bat. So the whole thing is that it's like an expansion pass is the idea. Um, so you are getting like future DLC. And they said that the last wave of it, this four waves that they have planned at the moment, but they said that the last wave of it is going to be like a huge story expansion, the size of the one from Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which is like noted as being like a 30 hour kind of like perfect ending to that video game. Or it's like a prequel. I'm not really sure. It doesn't matter. Uh, but either yeah. way, like that's what the end of that is. And you're getting a couple waves of DLC before that. And the first thing that they have is just like a bunch of Napon coins and then also uh, like new permanent outfits for the characters and like some other gear that honestly was not useful at the point that I'm at in the game. But it's just like some palette swaps for some of the colors and a bunch of Napon coins. But I'm excited about like what's next. Like there there are going to be like extra heroes that they're adding through this DLC, cool. which I don't really mind, honestly. Like, I don't think it's going to be like a Javik in Mass Effect 3 situation. <laughs> I At least I, I hope so. that's not the case, because like, yeah. to be as bad as Javik would mean that this character would need to be like integrated into the entirety of the story. And the idea of like, I'm going to finish this game and then unlock this hero and that's going to change some stuff for me. That's interesting to me like that. I don't really mind as much. I think the like for me, it's like, OK, are they are they making more after the fact or is it like, you know, because Dravik was on the disc. Right. It was, it yes. was day one deals. Uh, Javik is our metric for like, is this DLC soulless? Basically? <laughs> Does this DLC have a soul? And uh, yeah, <laughs> that was very good. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm I'm full of Mass Effect quotes. Yeah. All that to say, I am still really enjoying this game. I, I imagine that will continue. I think even even if like in the late game, there are things that maybe miss the mark a little bit. I think that like I don't see anything dramatically changing how I feel about this. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where I'm at with it. Yeah. Me too. Uh, Unless, you know, the story goes completely off the rails, Uh, (laughs) which is always possible to be clear. But uh, I'm I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that it's going to be all right. Cool. With that, do you want to wrap up? 
yeah, I think maybe now is the time. Yeah. Wow. This is a yeah. longer episode than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Time is irrelevant to how it feels, you know? <laughs> uh-huh. Hey, thank you for listening. Enter uh, the cast that online is our hub for everything. Places to listen to the show. You can review us on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Saw some new reviews recently. Thank you so much for your kind words. Uh, Into the cast that online also has our links to the Discord and to our Patreon. Big thanks to everyone who can support the show. Uh, like we've said uh, in recent episodes, if we hit our goal of $2,000 a month, we will do a 3DS special for patrons. We've been kind of slowly preparing for that regardless, <laughs> just because we like playing 3DS. And, and you know, with the Easter going down, there's like an incentive to highlight stuff. So expect 3DS discussion regardless. But if we do hit that goal, I'm really excited for the possibility of that episode. So thank you for those who are able to back it. Yeah. Otherwise, not too much. Uh, our Paper Mario bonus for everybody is coming up. We're going to be recording that in a couple of weeks, and that will be coming out this month, most likely. Uh, we actually have all our bonuses planned for the rest of the year, which is kind of exhilarating. More on that when the time is right. It's pretty wild. But for now, I'm not going to tell you anything. And that's it. Um, I honestly have a lot of games on the horizon. Like, I feel like there are moments when we're doing this show where there'll be like a big sale and I pick up like eight things and then I just sort of forget <laughs> that I have them. And I feel like there's still like a million things on Switch that I haven't opened yet. Yeah. So like, I have no idea what next week is going to look like, but I'm actually like thrilled at that possibility. Yeah. I was looking at the uh, air table at like the games coming out over the next couple of months and we're just going to be like totally inundated. I think September in particular is going to be really wild uh, or is it October? It doesn't matter either way. There's a month coming up that's just like there's 14 or 15 things on there that I'm excited. about. Yeah, there's also a bunch of other stuff that I've been like playing and watching that I just like keep not bringing up. I'll just, I'll say them out loud. How about that? Uh, and, and I won't talk about it. I love that. Uh, multiverses. I played a bunch of co-op. It was good. Power Wash Simulator is a really fun <laughs> game to play on the Ein Odin uh, through game. Game Pass streaming uh, right before I go to bed. Fortnite continues to be a thing that I play every summer for some reason. Uh, Indiana Jones <laughs> is in there and that's very funny to me. And I also watched all of players in one sitting on Paramount Plus, uh, which was a great TV show by the makers of American Vandal. Uh, maybe expect to hear more about that in the future. Yeah, I'm excited to watch that. Uh, I definitely plan on, on watching that sometime soon after you and Adam have been really recommending it to me. So I will say Adam. 30 minute episodes. Watch up through episode three before you decide. Gotcha. That's good to know. Speaking of other fun things on the horizon, I want to plug our very good friends show Asynchronous. Our editor and close friend AJ and our good friend Kim host a video game podcast called Asynchronous. And they're starting their new season, I think, the day after this episode comes out. So uh, definitely check out their new season. It's going to be about Mass Effect 2. And they just wrapped up their previous season on 13 Sentinels. So definitely check that show out. It's a great time. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's all I have currently. Nice. Well, I guess in that case, head over to IntoTheCast.online for our links to everything. Uh, and my name is Brendan Bigley. You can find me on the internet at Brendan Bigley. I'm Stephen Hilger. You can find me at Stephen Hilger. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Yes. Enjoy your week, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Garbage. The online.